first things first, Camilla, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Despite the COVID, I'm all good, yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you feel better soon and uh, it's good to hear that you're not too uh, under the weather. Yeah. So before we get into your new album, I'd like to jump back to the beginning quickly because uh, you were born in Iket uh, in, in Nigeria. What kind of music was played as you were growing up and what instilled kind of that passion for music in you? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I came over to London, West London, when I was quite young. Um, but I have, I've grown up with a mixture of music. My dad's Grenadian and obviously my mum's okay. Nigerian. So um, there's a mixture of kind of fella cootie. Um, my dad was really into jazz. So okay. he was, that got me into jazz. He has um, an amazing vinyl collection. Mm-hmm. And particularly, we used to listen to music together on Sundays. And he was the one that introduced me to Sonny Stitz, Jackie McLean, okay. his favorites, uh, all saxophone, mainly all saxophone players. <laughs> uh, so there's no surprise that I picked up sax. Um, he really likes Danny Tarantine. Um, and yeah, we that was a really important like part of my musical upbringing. I think when you started. The- started to delve into the saxophone did you take to it immediately or was there kind of a learning curve to kind of get what you had in your head and what you heard on those records to kind of get that out of the instrument yeah I mean I was it was weird because when uh, I first saw a sax it was um a friend of my mum's and her boyfriend had a tennis sax and he just left it in her her flat and I was eight and I picked up um, she hadn't been able to get a sound out of it and I got a sound out and I was like yes and actually from teaching now that you know quite a lot of kids when they start saxophone can't get a sound at all so I think I was lucky in that I was able to get somewhere at the beginning but yeah to getting um, from picking up a sax and getting a, a sound to playing jazz was a very it was a long journey um, that's for sure yeah and You've studied music as well, or jazz at uh, Trinity College London. So for you, the both kind of that upbringing of, of all those uh, people we mentioned, and then also the kind of the the African roots music you were uh, listening to, and and kind of the more strict uh, education of jazz. How did you kind of combine combine those two worlds into to kind of where you are now with your own voice? Well, I think. Um... Definitely when I was at college, obviously we, you know, we were just learning the kind of basics of of jazz improvisation um, and harmony. But I think what's made the situation, um, what's made it so that people can combine those two influences is, is the scene in London. Okay. And in particular, thanks for that, has to go to Tomorrow's Warriors. They're an organisation that I um, joined when I was 11. It's free and it's for kids from all backgrounds and you have lessons with these very famous jazz musicians, some like Soweto Kinch, um, Dennis Baptiste, etc. And um, they basically created a safe space for people to develop their skills. 
and out of the Tomorrow's Warriors family, as we call it, we have groups like Cocoroco, Ezra Collective, Nabaya Garcia. And it was allowing us to feel safe about embracing our cultural roots mm. and merging it with jazz, which actually, even though London's quite obviously very multicultural, prior to this, hadn't been such an accepted thing. Um, sure. You played jazz straight ahead and that was it, you know. Um, in terms of my experience of it. And um, I think Tomorrow's Warriors gave us all the confidence and the space to be able to do that, to merge the two things. Yeah, when did you start to create your own compositions? When did you kind of get those ideas that you had in your head out in, into something tangible? Um, well, it was around the 2014, no, it must be earlier than that. No, 2012, 2013, around then, I did uh, a Venus Warriors project with Courtney Pine, who I've known for a while. I knew him through Tomorrow's Warriors. And um, we were, everyone was bringing their own compositions, but I had none. So I just chose, I chose um, uh, like one of my favorite standards. And he really gave me a bit of a telling off and said, you know, you really need to be writing your own stuff. Um, at that time, I hadn't really occurred to me to do that. And I think I didn't have the confidence. So it took a while. Um, I started my project in 2014. And it's just been a learning curve since then to now. Um, and I, I, you know, I continue to learn in terms of writing. I'd like to get better at things like arranging and stuff like that. Um, and you just continue to learn, I guess, the more you do it. Can, can you share one lesson that you've learned that that was instrumental in kind of getting you getting your skills to to where they are now from from where you started i think um one the one lesson i got is from uh one of my favorite musicians um kenny garrett um kenny garrett obviously is a ridiculous saxophone player but mm. the thing that gets me with kenny is his compositions because it's so different to what I heard at college where everyone was fighting to write these pieces that were in 13, 8 or whatever and they sounded hard and they didn't, you know, basically sounded like exercises. Well, his pieces, when you look at them harmonically, they're actually quite complex, but they mm. don't sound complex. They sound they, they're quite like lullabies, some of yeah. them, if you like, sing a song, um, and I really like that aspect of creating music that is accessible, but you don't have to dumb it down. I think it's a real skill. You know, you could ease, you know, there are obviously there are people that should write stuff that's on one chord or whatever, not to say that that's dumbed down, but he writes stuff that it sounds easy and it's singable. It's not necessarily. And that's what I, what I really like about composition. Yeah, because when you release your first album then what was that a big step for you where kind of putting out your own first body of work yeah I mean I'd done an EP before then but I knew nothing about releasing music and had done right. it completely by myself and basically just printed the CDs off <laughs> and was handing them out at gigs so it didn't obviously that didn't get picked up at all um yeah it was it was a big step and it was hard and a lot of lessons learned from it you know um it was hard work and I, I'm sure and I made mistakes and everyone makes mistakes and then you learn from it and you keep going but looking back I'm proud of the what we achieved yeah because one thing I always find interesting is uh, 
I talk with a lot of musicians about the industry in a way where where it, it is a volatile business. A lot of people pursue music for passion and, and there are a lot of uncertainties you have to deal with along the way. So so what keeps you strong in those moments where you where you've, you've had a bad gig or so, something what what keeps you motivated or what keeps you focused on on what you want to accomplish? Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. I think having a bit of a life outside of music mm. as well to mm. get a perspective. I was very lucky. Another saxophone, UK sax player, had quite similar uh, like history to me and kind of root into music. And same with my piano player, Sarah. So it's me, mm. Soweto and Sarah, we both did. Um, Sarah did English at Cambridge. Soweto did history at Oxford. Okay. I did ancient and medieval history for my okay. first I know, crazy. Um, mainly because my dad really didn't want me to be a, a saxophone player because I discovered my granddad, his dad was a sax player and he didn't think it was a mm. kind of reputable thing. Obviously, I did just ignore him. Became <laughs> a saxophone player. But to appease him and also because I was interested in history, I did this first degree. And um, I made some friends, like friends for life, who are they do all kinds of things none of them to do with music and it's actually really nice to have a kind of friendship group that's not music related mm. that you can get a perspective on what we do because I think sometimes it just becomes so much and as you say if you do a bad gig you're so in your head and it's actually quite nice to hang with people that don't think it's the end of the world if you like didn't play a good solo for example well because i, I read something about uh well ronnie scott's uh club and and, and uh you said something about confidence and pers uh, perseverance of, of where when you have a bad show or you feel like you've had a bad show you just keep on pushing you keep on going yeah yeah i think so i think you have to but to get that strength you have to have a, a wider view on life i think to be mm. like okay, yeah, that was bad. I didn't play well or didn't go well or this is really stressful. Let's carry on. Um, I think the more I've, like, further I've gone in music, the more stressful it's become. Okay. I kind of thought when I'm starting out, oh, but when I do this, when I play this place, I won't have any worries. And it's mm. like, no, they're like 10 times worse. But <laughs> Yeah, that's that's uh, that's what I found with growing older. Right? I, I found that... Yeah, in your mind, like when I turn 30, I've got it all figured out. But then you kind of realize, okay, no, it's still the same. And you still have all things to figure out. So, um, Well, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of your, your educational background, because does that, obviously, uh, there's an interest in, in your heritage culturally and, and, and based on your roots. But is it also almost uh, an academic interest as well in the history of, of your people? 
Yeah, I think so. Definitely during lockdown, which is when I started the re- research and like finishing off this album, it was really interesting to to like I was reading people's dissertation papers and my mum's got quite a lot of books um on African history and okay. US African history. Um and I really got into it. And I think, yeah, part of that is because I like the historical aspect of it and I find it very interesting. And there's loads of stuff that I learned. Um, about the BBO people that I didn't know before. Yeah, because your previous album, uh, The People Could Fly, was already inspired by a lot of uh, slave tales, I believe, uh, mm. or, or a specific book. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, so it's a book of African folk tales which are based on slavery. Okay. Um, yeah. No, and then, and then I, I see this album, maybe you see it differently, uh, but but it feels like a continuation of some of those themes and kind of the exploration of, of, of both historical and cultural uh, explore, exploration. So you mentioned that deep dive that you did during COVID. Is there, is there one thing or one story that really stuck out to you? Um, yeah, uh, there was like, there were a couple, like the one, the tune that I wrote, the long um, shrine of Arachuku, that's a really interesting one, because obviously that is actually in the, you know, it's in the village of Eket. Mm. Uh, and just the thing of like, um, the, um, it was where people would be tried. Mm. And if they were found guilty, they would go down these kind of, um, they call them the slave routes. So it's these little tunnels and the tunnels would be going down to the beach. Um, Now, if they were found guilty, apparently the water was supposed to turn red. Mm. um, The innocent people were returned to their relatives um, and it's yeah, so the Long Juju Slavery was just like a dark series of tunnels. Mm. Um, and they'd say that the guilty would disappear, the, the sea would cut, go red. In actual fact, it's like a mythology mixed with a, a sad history of, of slavery because they will be right. actually transported to boats, waiting boats, and then taken along this slave route. And it's quite interesting because it is something that's quite. Uh, an unpleasant fact of slavery that um, African people were kind of roped into. They were also enslaved, but in a different way to helping slavers. Right. Um, and that's that was something that that, that really uh, stood out to me because it, yeah, it's like people thought that they were oh the the you know they've been found guilty and they were actually being taken on to to slavery. Right and. When when you have something like that, a story like that, a, a heavy subject like that, and then everything that goes along with it, as a creative, as a as a songwriter in a way, the, the, how do you then try to capture that musically, or or is that kind of more afterwards that that you kind of find these themes? No, I do try and capture it musically. I mean, that one, I knew I was going to co- collab with um, Sanity, a Birmingham-based rapper who I've been very lucky to have done a few tours the last. One we did together was with Pee Wee Ellis, obviously before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, I sent her the story so that she could encapsulate that in her lyrics. So on that particular one, that's how that's how we did it. Um, generally, I always have a, a, that a, the story in mind when writing because I okay. think it's that's what I think probably coming from the like literary or more academic 
background, I find that quite inspiring. I've always liked stories, and that's probably what inspires me more. Right. Uh, the, uh, I, there was a tagline, I think, in the bio or something, the, that this album was a celebration of roots, creation, and community. And and I want to focus on the community aspect a little bit, because you mentioned all these names and, and people that, that you play with in in your band. And what 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 is that community like that, that you have created for yourself with the people, the musicians around you? Well, yeah, it's great. I mean, that's the UK jazz scene for you, a certain uh, part of this new UK, whatever they're calling mm -hmm. it. Um, it is a community. I think we're community and family. I mean, it starts with Tomorrow's Worries because we all came from, most of us came from Tomorrow's Worries and we found each other there. And it's just this big network of people. It's like the other day I was going to a ridiculously, getting a ridiculously early Eurostar. Um, and I saw Dan Casimir, um, my bass player. I saw Chelsea Carmichael, who I know. And it's like, there's just this web of community that has been created. Um, I think probably in a response to the lack of community that mm. was there previously, particularly amongst ethnic minorities, in the jazz world in in the well in the UK um but specifically I guess London facing in London mm -hmm. and that's how the Warriors came about there was a thing called the Jazz Warriors which Courtney Pine was part of and Gary Crosby and then they created this Tomorrow's Warriors to create this community this safe space for people yeah what if oh sorry no I'm saying I think that's what uh, it was no because of the you mentioned kind of this this free space where where people can can express themselves in the in the way they they want to. So how has that influenced the choices you make now? If you, if you take this this album, uh, how has it influenced kind of the the ability to talk about, for instance, those uh, slave roots, or, or how how has it kind of expanded what what you can do? I think it's given us a confidence to do so. Um, you know, obviously, I was not anywhere near produced my album before this um the uk scene exploded but i do mm -hmm. remember what it was like and being in college like if you'd have presented an album at that time that dealt with themes of slavery i don't think in terms of that uk market that it would have gone down that mm -hmm. well um perhaps like internationally but also what's happened with the uk scene is opened up the channels to europe and the international right. Know, like the US, I think we're that are those places are now more aware of London. Um, so it would have flopped for sure. And I think that's the thing that this scene has allowed. It's this thing of like you can be a jazz musician, but you can embrace your African roots because actually at the end of the day, that's where it came from anyway. The original musical jazz came over from the African enslaved in the US. Right. And having, well, uh, this is maybe a weird question in between, but uh, when was the last time or have you been back to, to uh, kind of the Nigerian coast uh, recently? Or I haven't, no. Um, my cousin, Idara, was very keen for us, for me to come. But obviously with COVID, it, was, right. like, it was a bit of a, a no-go. And now I'm back to, as everyone is, I think, back on this crazy touring um, schedule. So I don't have the time, but I would like to go um, probably in 2023. Um, okay. particularly, I mean, I'd love to play there. Um, I just want to go 
back to my village to hustle people to give me <laughs> <laughs> no because that's it feels like have you how should i phrase this have you kind of learn something about yourself by doing this deep dive and exploring kind of the the, the origins of of uh of your tribe and, and and the people that you're descended from yeah i think so and i think i've really started to think about what i stand for personally as well um which i didn't i don't know i think i i, I knew but i think looking at my roots and looking into these things of slavery especially with UK politics situation um you know you start to think okay yeah um it's definitely made me more political I think and on the musical side I, I mentioned community and now there's there's some uh in the, in the second song uh, journey across the sea I hear a chora and then there's there's all these kind of little elements of of, of uh, not only African instrumentation but kind of again those community musical community so how do you from an arranging standpoint, kind of figure out what to add to which song and when when to let the piano do its thing and when when you can do your thing. Um, yeah, well, I produced the album with my very good friend Tom Harrison, who's another alto player. We met first okay. day at music college. Actually, okay. he auditioned after me, and they took us both. I thought I'd kind of got in. They kind of said, "Yeah, you know." We, you know, really like you, but you're the first person to audition. So, you know, um, we'll get back to you. And then I heard him audition and he was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, no, that's it. Not getting <laughs> but um, they took us both. So we've been really good friends since then. He's a fantastic musician. Um, we thought a lot about how we were going to arrange the pieces. Um, he actually did the horn arrangements on that piece, um, which are beautiful. And the actual, that piece was um, the only one really that was a, a, a collab in terms of myself and Cordiali got together and um, we we work, we worked on this piece and then I fleshed it out basically because he doesn't, um, doesn't read music or in that sense, but he's an amazing musician. So we, we thought we wanted to do something together and we got together and did a lot of playing and then we came up with that. Um, so I really wanted to give him a moment to shine in that. And we just had to work out how, how we were going to make that with all the people. It's a big band. Yeah. And, and that's uh, kind of what you mentioned just now, uh, being back on the road. Now, what is it like being back on the road after, after those two years that we've had, but also the band is quite big and, and it is quite an undertaking, I suppose. So, so what is, what is life getting back on the road again? For you. Well, yeah, I mean, sadly, we can't. I'm not taking the full bands. We, okay. we mainly tour as a quartet. Now, I think with Brexit and the, you know, the remnants of COVID, I don't think there's as much money even to take a five piece. So I go out as a four piece, which is okay. fine. We've I've reduced the music and it works. Um, it's stressful. That's what it's like on the road. Um, it's very stressful. Um, as I say, Brexit has made it very annoying um, for UK yeah. musicians. And then the whole flight situation, we've lost the symbols four times in a row. So that was... Okay. <laughs> but having said that, with all that, the stresses, it is nice to be able to go back, it's particularly Europe, um, you know, I really missed not being able to play some of those festivals. 
Sure. And with the album uh, coming out, then what do you hope that people hear it once you play it for people? What what do you hope they take away, or is it, can they take away anything, or do you want them to think about certain stuff? Or I think it's hope and joy, which I think is the essence of any music, but particularly jazz. Um, it's something that really strikes me when I look at pictures of people you know, in the 40s and 50s going to bebop clubs, the joy and the sense of fun and the fact that people were dancing. So the thing that I think particularly in the UK got forgotten when jazz went, it was more or less only for concert halls with there's nothing wrong with that, but it was a dance music. And I like the aspect that people can dance to the music to have to if you don't want to, but I like that aspect and I hope that that's, my music is start some part of bringing that aspect of jazz back. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And this is the last question that I have for you. But but with what you just mentioned, why do you think that is? Why did do you think that jazz kind of got this reputation of being somewhat reserved or everybody just just being somewhat? Uh, is it is it just British culture? Is it is it what what is it? It might be yeah, because when you go to New York, you know people are more raucous in the clubs. Sure. Um, I think so. I think it was a kind of, probably in in Europe and as well, maybe there was, dare I say it, a slight appropriation in mm. terms of trying to intellectualise a music that was already quite very deep, but right. deep levels. And maybe that kind of trying to align it with a classical mentality, um, meant that some of these aspects of the joy and the the dancing aspects were taken away because obviously, you know, in some of our beautiful halls, you wouldn't expect somebody to get up and be dancing right. a lot. You know? It's a shame, actually. It would be fun if, if if people would dance in the Royal Albert Hall, I think. It would be, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'd be 100% like to bring that back. But yeah, they, you never know. Well, it sounds great. And and uh, I wish you all the best with everything that's going to happen in the next couple of months. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, no worries. Thank you very much.